Welcome to the Hank and Herb Show. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Chemostone Guest. We got the other two uh, compadres of mine, partners in crime. We got brother Haroon Shabazz from Baltimore, Maryland. What's up, Haroon? It's all good. Salam alaikum. Yeah, alaikum salam, black man. And then we got Chris Fun from outside of Baltimore, outside of DC. He's from Baltimore, though. I feel outnumbered here with all these Baltimoreans. What's up, Chris? What's up, Yurt? That's how we say hi in Baltimore. Is that how y'all say it? Hey, right. um, on today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, a piece I wrote on Educated Guesses uh, on August 17th, a piece called Finding Solutions in Today's Chaotic World Using the Wisdom of the J-Master. And for those of you who don't know, the J-Master is Marcus, well, Marthaniel, Marcus, the J-Master Roberts, one of the greatest pianists in the world. And guess what? We are blessed to have him on the podcast today. The J Master, Marcus Roberts, is joining us live and in living color from Tallahassee. What's going on, Jay? Oh, man, I'm, I'm doing well. It's, it's great to hear your voice. Good to, good to see you out here bringing people's attention to all of these relevant issues that are going on right now. Okay, man. Well, you know, before we get into the piece, because I want to I tap into the wisdom of the J Master in real time. I want you to tell the story that I, that I wrote about that you told me that I got so much information for him, from in terms of uh, how we can approach solving problems. But I just want to ask you, man, how are you dealing with COVID and the lockdown and the music industry basically being on hold right now? What are you dealing with? Uh, well, I've been taking the last four to five months um, since I mean, the last engagement I was supposed to do was right at Carnegie Hall on the 12th of March. So that got canceled maybe four hours before we were supposed to hit. And so I came back to Florida and like most people, not just musicians, to be honest with you, it took me a minute to even realize what was happening, how serious this pandemic really was and is. It, it took a while. And at a certain point, I realized that, well, you're not gonna be playing concerts for a while. And I would say starting from the age of 10, I could tell you when my next performance in front of people was going to be. Now today, if you ask me that question, I don't know. I really don't know. So it's a pretty heavy thing. So what I decided that I would have to do, like many musicians, is I'd have to find another set of platforms to continue to interact with my audience and the public. And I'd have to find other ways uh, just to keep what I'm doing going until we're, you know, uh, back online, so to speak. So um, even now, this Zoom call, I mean, it took a long time for me to figure out how to use that and how to make it work and how to get the different cameras and all these things. So that's really what I've been up to. And right now, um, like a lot of folks, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing some online teaching and uh, probably teaching some lessons over Zoom, I, I teach at Florida State, so we're working through that. So really a lot of it has to do with that and I'll be continuing to compose and arrange and, and prepare for the wonderful day when we will be able to walk on the bandstand and swing out for our people. Uh, have you been shedding a lot? You've been- uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, just, do uh, your piano chops? Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> you gotta stay on that. Yeah, just really focusing on some of the issues of piano that I never really have 
as much time to work on because like you can spend like two or three weeks just working on pedaling, right? You, you know, figuring out different nuances that the pedals bring to the instrument. I mean, you can spend all kind of time working just on Bach for clarity and balance. You can spend a lot of time, if you're trying to build power and strength, Beethoven is great for that. If you're interested in uh, a different view of counterpoint or a different view of balancing voices, then Chopin's music is incredible for that and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'm, I'm digging into those things and just continuing to just focus on um, refining the different touches that I use to express my personality. You know, that was one of the things that I was telling the cats before we started the show is that your touch uh, as a yeah. pianist is, is absolutely incredible. Oh, you know, thank you. The, the articulation that you have in each and every, every single note, you, you know, has a purpose and a meaning inside of it. You can feel that. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with just the different pianists that I've listened to uh, throughout my life. But Monk is probably, I would argue, like if you wanted to talk about somebody who really had a distinct sound playing the piano, I, I don't know of anyone that sounds like him. Like you can listen to like Fats Waller and Art Tatum and Teddy Wilson, and generally speaking, it's very subtle, but they're basically coming out of the same sound. But who mm -hmm. sounds like Monk that you've heard? It's like, well, he's the only one that sounds like that. Well, you know, what's interesting about Monk is you can't play Monk's music without sounding like him. Well, that's true, at least from the <laughs> standpoint of acknowledging that you know that that's the level of genius that we're striving for in terms of sound. <laughs> uh, but you're right, like you can't play his music and be thinking of a different style other than the one that he's saying it needs to be. You are definitely going to have to do that, which is why I think a lot of musicians were frustrated playing his music. I mean, it was hard. They couldn't just go into automatic bebop pilot playing his music. He couldn't stand that. And so to play his music, yeah, you got to deal with the melodies of his songs, the, the thematic construction in terms of whatever improvisational language that you're going to use. Well, Chris has a, po a poster of Monk behind his head there. What, what you got to say about Monk, Chris? He's the GOAT, like he was saying. Like, you, um, can't, you can't find that sound anywhere before him. And I think, I think if you're really trying to do this music right, that's the goal. You know, you listen to everybody before you, and then you come up with your interpretation of it. And, and I don't see a clearer example than, than, than Monk, for sure. And you well, know, Dre, also, um, in a certain ahead, way, that's an analogy of the struggle that we're having today you know, with Black Lives Matter and racism and police brutality, right? Black folks are struggling sort of like on the bandstand to perfect this, this struggle, to perfect what we're trying to do. And you wrote a great article about how Marcus handles that on the bandstand, right? Are you going to get into a little of that and, and explain, us, explain to us how you came up with this, with this article? Well, Marcus told me a story, I don't know how many years ago. I've known Marcus 25 plus years. And uh, he told me a story one day, I forget what it was, but that story blew me away. And as I was thinking of something to write a couple of weeks ago on how we should address where we stand as individuals within, the, within our place as, as black, particularly as black folks, 
in this country and how we are going to address the problems individually and collectively. I, I went back to that story and uh, I'm gonna let Marcus tell the story. He knows the one I'm talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we can sort of talk about the implications thereof. Would you tell us that story, Marcus? Well, obviously, if you are blind as I am, you miss out on any visual cues that go on around you. You know, people are communicating in non-visual ways that you, you really can't, you really can't do that if you can't see. So uh, when you're on the bandstand playing, uh, those interactions are not available to you. However, the good news is uh, music is really based on more being able to hear than to see. So a lot of times when you're playing music, if people really listen, when problems occur, the solutions are actually based on being able to hear. But unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, people's eyes get in their way. So they're looking at each other, they're looking around, they're distracted. And so things go wrong on the bandstand and people basically kind of point the finger. Well, man, you dragging. And they might tell the bass player, you dragging. Or, man, you rushing, you know? You need to pay attention to what I'm playing. Piano player, yeah, man, you, you playing too much. You know, you need to back off so I can hear what I'm trying to do. And then the piano player is looking at the bass player, man, you, you playing the, the wrong chord changes. You know, and the drummer's going, looking at the piano player, man, you know, you're, you're playing too much, you know, I can't really feel your pulse. So it just goes on and on. The end result is nothing gets solved. The music, perhaps, depending on the level of professionalism, falls apart. But at the end of the gig, typically, there's an uncomfortable quiet that goes on in terms of everybody recognizing that things went wrong, but nobody really knowing what to do. And I've always had a strong belief that if I'm on the bandstand and something goes wrong, I assume it's my fault. And I try to think in the split second time that you have to think and make a decision, what can I do to improve it or make it sound better without playing in a way that's accusatory, meaning banging out a bass note that the bass player isn't playing that you think he should play or playing a rhythm that you feel like the drummer couldn't be that dumb and wouldn't understand that that's the rhythm he should be playing. So if in a band situation, I mean, I had two basic rules. Rule number one is just what I said. If something goes wrong, assume it's your fault and fix it. And rule number two was you couldn't bring, you couldn't introduce a problem um, in any band that I'm leading if you didn't have a solution to it. I didn't want to hear it because it's not going to help. Um, and so those two rules have, have worked uh, uh, pretty well for the, for the work that I've done out here over, over all these 35 years, I guess now it is. Well, we, we asked someone who actually was, has played in the band that you've led, um, several different bands that you led. Let's, let's see if this person can comment on those rules. Another ATN Charles, all surprise guests. Oh my goodness. Trumpeter, ATN Charles. Where you calling in from, Brother Charles? I'm calling them from Okemos, Michigan. Good afternoon to the distinguished panel. <laughs> so, so what do you think about those rules that uh, Brother, Brother J? I mean, they're the, rule, they're the rules that I live by, you know. Um, I mean, I, I came up under the J-Master. I played him. I mean, we, we had a quartet that he led. We had a, right. we had a septet, the, the sextet and the septet. We dealt with the music of Deep in the Shed. And... Um, 
And yeah, the you know, and when you're in what we call the heat of battle, when you're on stage, when the music is happening, um, instincts have to kick in, and it's it's not always perfect. It's not always right, um, and so adjustments have to be made. And in order to make to know that you have to make an adjustment, means that you you have to submit yourself to the music. Like when you go on a bandstand, you kind of leave yourself behind. Like you leave a good bit of your own, your own agendas behind. And when you come on stage, the music becomes the boss. And, and at the end of the, at the end of the day, the goal is to make the music better. And so if there's something that you can do immediately to make the music pop better, you do that. And if something's turned around, if something's flipped, um, you just adjust. And once you're adjusting, then then you are fixing the music, which is what it's about. Well, how can we apply this to where we find ourselves today? Because we, we're all on the bandstand right now. <laughs> the bandstand <laughs> of life dealing with a lot of problems, right? And we got a lot of people who are bringing themselves to the bandstand, but we do have an underlying problem that we're trying to address. How can we use the wisdom of the J to deal with uh, where we find ourselves today? But Jay's wisdom is, to me, is everything, right? Because you look out at the landscape and you have a variety of actors out there, stakeholders, people in the black community. Let's say that that's the bandstand. And for the most part, day in and day out, we do the opposite. We don't take responsibility for the problem. We just assume that it's somebody else's. So we play the blame game. And we're not proactive in solutions. We're just turning around looking for somebody else to give us the answer to our problems. So I think if we take the wisdom of the J master that he applies to the bandstand, we'll be a thousand times better off, right? It's that just imagine a world in which everybody involved says, hey, listen, I'm going to assume that whatever's going wrong, that I'm part of the problem, let me take corrective action. Let's say that everybody's involved says, listen, we're going to be proactive and we're going to be about solutions, right? And we're not going to engage in this never ending game of blaming each other. So I mean, to me, I think it's everything. I think the, 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 uh, the obvious thing now, the, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The special moment we're in now is that a lot of us can agree on at least a short-term goal. <laughs> and, and you don't even have to state that right now. If, you, if you're talking about politics, especially presidential politics. And I think what, what Marcus is saying that, that I'm pulling from it is to now, it's basically if you aren't, if you aren't essentially helping, you're probably hurting. And I think that's the mentality of kind of like the bandstand concept that he's talking about and i think that's how we can apply that now like if you aren't about this short-term goal like right now it seems to be police brutality and just getting somebody out the white house and like those two goals right now to me are short-term and obvious to a lot of people who are of like minds and if you aren't helping at this point you're probably hurting i'm not saying you are but there's a good probability that you are that's a very that's a very powerful point i mean very powerful um but I'm, let me not interrupt. I, somebody was about to jump in. 
I, I, I was just gonna to, gonna jump in and say that one of the key points of the J Master's teaching with this um, what we want to call it way of thinking it, it goes right to what Chris is saying. But before that, on the bandstand, we are one. It's one group. We don't like when when you're on the bandstand, you don't think. You know, you, you could try to break it down into horn section, rhythm section, whatever, but you're one band. And a lot of times what's going on in America is because of these unnecessary divisions that are happening, whether it's right or left, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, if we see it as something that is everybody's problem, then we will move a certain way to fix the problem. That's, that's one of the main things because the problems that we're having like police brutality and whatnot, a lot of people didn't see it as their problem. That's one of the reasons we're in the situation. But whereas when you're on the bandstand, if, if something's wrong, the whole band sounds bad. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, at the end, like, like everybody needs to realize that, 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 that they have a part to play in fixing the problem. That's the, that's the point. You know, and that's come that comes straight from what Jay talks about. No, wow, no, wow. That's um, yeah, that's heavy, right? So perhaps the first step that we need to make is the step of being unified, recognizing that we're all on the same bandstand, that we're all part of the same group, and that we all have to take responsibility. If we don't work together, just imagine if you got a renegade on the bandstand. I don't know if that's ever happened in a group where somebody just insists on have invoking their will, taking over it's, the band. It's usually the, the trumpet. It's usually the trumpet player. Nah, don't try that. <laughs> <laughs> usually, it's that. usually the tenor player. Don't try that. It's usually the tenor player. The loudest instrument in the group, the trumpet player. It's usually him or her. Nah, nah, nah. Y'all ganging up on me now. Come on. But but for real, is that ever really a problem in a because most of the time when we see the finished work, when we see, you know, listen to the album, the CD, or we go and see the live performance, we don't really pick up if there's any tension in the band or if somebody is a renegade or somebody is, but does those things happen? And when those things happen, does it really affect the band that much? Or yes. Well, let me say something, I'll let the musicians, I'm not a musician. One of the things that the reason we don't see it, we don't you don't hear it on the live recording because the live, I mean, I mean, the, the regular recording is because they they stop and they start again when the problem fix the problem. But when you go to a live show, it happens all the time. And the reason you don't know that it happens is because they do a good job of covering it up. And you don't know sometimes what you're listening for or listening to in terms of that tension. And that's true in life. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we're not aware of that there's all kind of tension taking place, but for what it, because we're not, you know, astute enough to understand it. We don't study enough about what's going on to be able to interpret it when it happens, but it's happening all the time in real time. But brother Jay, speak on that in terms of um, what's going on on the bandstand and how it's being covered up, but it's really, you know, it's really it, problematic. It's uh, well, uh, usually um, just like in life, a lot of the big problems, well, let's, let's look at this example. Let's say you have a really beautiful house, okay, in a wonderful neighborhood, um, but, for, but for some reason, you never clean it, right? You never clean it, so eventually you say, well, I'm gonna get some carpet so I can cover up all this dirt. Wow, it's really dirt, so you get, you know, get some real pretty carpet, 
and you cover everything up. People walk in your house, they don't know that it's filthy. It's horrible because you've covered it up. Well, at some point, though, you have not cleaned it for such a long period of time that the insects and the rats are just everywhere. You, you can't, you can no longer. So now people can walk in your house and go, man, what, is that a rat I just saw run across your car? Um, and so at that point, you really can't deny that there's a problem. And so at some point, the real decision is, are we gonna take up all the carpet and move all this furniture and get it out of here and take a week and clean this house? That's what's going on in this country. We're at a point where we can't pretend anymore. I mean, these problems are real. Whether you are uh, a young black man, whether you are uh, disabled, uh, you can't see, you can't hear, you can't walk. I mean, you know, these issues are cross-platform issues. Uh, you could be uh, an alcoholic. You could be, I mean, a lot of the problems that people have, you can hide them. Now, disability tends not to be one of them. So you tend to wear your problem everywhere you go. And so what you attempt to do is to manage the problem. And what most people think when they see the problem, they're like, oh my God, I don't know what I would do in that situation. So fear kicks in. When fear kicks in, that's when destruction is very real and very possible. Because to confront fear, a lot of times people act emotionally and then they stick to their tribal group to protect themselves. So my feeling is that the solution is always to try to see yourself in someone else's struggle. And if you can help them with their struggle and if they help you with your struggle, then there's at least a meeting place of commonality that you can at least start from to, to work on solving the problem. Wow. Wow. That is, no, Dre, that is, that is, no, that's heavy, right? Because if you want to say, people say, why now? Why 2020? All of these problems been going on for decades, centuries, years and years and years. And so why now? Because the house has gotten to a point where we can't cover up how filthy the house is. Correct. The rats, the in insects, the wild animals. It's like that show Hoarders or whatever the deal is. Now the neighbors are complaining, right? This type of thing. We've gotten to a point where we can't cover it up anymore. Everybody's out. Everybody's just running around saying, wow, we got a problem. And, and the second thing, Jay Massey, that you brought up, this, this idea about if we invest in other people's problems and, and say and they invest in our problems, then you come together at, at, some, at, at some point. Like a lot of people suggested that black folks should be in the business of teaching white folks how to overcome racism. And to that point, a number of black intellectuals have written books explaining to white folks that, uh, that you have to engage in a process. If you are not anti-racist, then you're probably racist that you have to take proactive activity. You have to check yourself. You're guilty of all kinds of micro racism, all kinds of sort of sideswipe, hit and run racism that happens to black people every day. And you may not be conscious or you, you just fail to recognize that you're part of the problem. And so, yes, I think that um, perhaps that's where we should start. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree Thanks. with that. Jay, speak a little bit about 
how integrity and sacrifice fit into uh, problem solving for, you know, individually and collectively in terms of what you right. may see. And because and, and, those are two, when I, when I think of you personally and professionally, right, that's, that's two words besides what you do pianistically. That's one word. I'm, I'm not going to say that because this is a, a, a family show. You are bad, <laughs> blank, blank, right? When right, it comes right. to that. Yes, sir. When I think about you personally and professionally, I think of two words. That's integrity and sacrifice. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about well, those? Um, well, integrity is a word that is thrown about quite a bit these days. Uh, I think it is essentially a belief system that you're willing to give up something precious to maintain it. In other words, I don't have integrity if, let's say I'm a billionaire and I'm willing to sacrifice $100,000 for a cause. That's not really a sacrifice, is it? Um, but if I'm a billionaire and I'm actually willing to give up like enough money to where I'm risking possibly struggling myself to save a bunch of people, that is a certain type of integrity, right? Um, but it, it really has more to do not so much with money or material possession. It has more to do with like a belief in something. And usually there's something to gain from giving it up. And, um, and it's usually something you want. So when you see somebody act on integrity, what you really see is the heroism that means that they're going to do two things. They're going to set an example for people that come behind them to understand how you maintain your integrity because you believe in this, in this system of justice or you, know, you believe in something that everybody's telling you, man, forget that, man. Just going out there for yourself, man. You, know, you, you could get $15 million if you do this. Yeah, but a whole community might get cancer if I do it. Well, you know, well, you know it's probably their fault. I mean, they, they, they could move. No, they couldn't. <laughs> so anyway, it, it goes on and on. But I think the, the thing about sacrifice is um, it's, it's, it's a deep discussion. Like I'll give you an example. Like most of the young blind kids that I talk to, because um, I would argue that the, that the blind community is probably the most diversified community on the planet. Like I, I grew up with blind guys. Like I, I know a couple who they're, they're like in prison for shooting some people, you know? Um, there are some who became computer scientists, some who are great musicians. Uh, but the thing is, when you think in terms of interacting with what we call the sighted world, right? I always tell them, first of all, make it easy for someone to understand you and to help you. And that means in a weird way, you got to sacrifice to even get the help. Like you got to prepare yourself. You got to make sure that a person doesn't have to experience your disability to help your disability. And so I think a lot of times when we think about whether we're talking about uh, young black men or whether we're talking about uh, women who are seeking equality in the workplace or whether we're talking about jazz musicians who might be jealous of the pop people who make like a hundred times more than we make any of those things. The real thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that you make it easy for people to understand what your struggle is about 
and that you do everything that you can so that they don't have to really interact with the struggle to understand it. And they can actually learn from you in terms of the solutions for your struggle that you have found and that you have implemented. Um, I think that kind of sacrifice, uh, you know, is, uh, is uh, meaningful. If I'm, I'm not necessarily into the, into the martyrdom type of sacrifice per se. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in sacrifice that's based on guaranteeing a certain outcome because of the sacrifice, if people can see it for what it is. You know, Jay, that's, that's a, that's a deep insight. You know, it makes me think of when somebody, when you want to help somebody or somebody wants to help you, whether it be a cause or whatever, particularly, I find this a lot in the nonprofit world. You got to raise a lot of money for a theater or some nonprofit or cultural institution. You got all kinds of people who want to help you, but the, the real trick to the matter is to find a way to ask the person to do something that they can actually do. There's, there's nothing more, there's nothing more frustrating than to ask somebody that wants to help you to do something that they either can't do or are not willing to do. Because at that point, you're both at odds with one another, even though you agree on what the issue is. So that gets back to your point, Brother Javaz, about how are we dealing with racism in this country? And what you said, Jay, was very interesting. Is like, they don't necessarily have to experience your disability in order to understand it, to be able to help, you know, help you in a situation. So, Brother Javaz, you know, you were talking about that earlier. What do you think about that in terms of your earlier point? No, I think the Jay Master is right on. And I don't know if he's... Um, taking some super pills this morning or whatever, but this, this is stuff is so deep, right? No, absolutely. Because a lot of times when we, we assume a lot of times when we're talking to other people that they understand where we're coming from. And a lot of times they truly don't, right? And so we have to go through the process of making it easy for these people to understand, to break it down to them. And, to, and whatever help that we want them to do to make it easy for them to give us the help with, without inviting them into the hardship or the struggle that we're going through. Because we claim that we, we're catching hell, why would we want anybody else to catch hell, right? If we are true to ourselves and true to our principles. And so, and so absolutely, I think a lot of times that we assume, we, a lot of times we talk, to, we talk to strangers like we're talking to our best friends. Our best friends know what we're saying, know what we're talking about. We've had this conversation a thousand times. A stranger does not. What the J Master said about integrity. A lot of people say that a lot of these celebrities are out here doing things, but what are they really risking? It's like a, it's like a, a multi-billionaire giving a $100,000 grant to someone versus, but if you're risking like an NBA player, risking, risking their career, then that says something about the person. That person has integrity for as far as what they really believe in. All of these things, I think, is just in, in the current view, in the current light, all of these things are, are super points that we need to, because well, a lot of times it's like, okay, the J master is the master of the piano. He didn't just, just jump up one day and start playing the piano and it was just some miracle and everybody said, my God, he's great or whatever. And he never has to practice. He never has to do anything. But how many of us really engage in the struggle in the same way that a jazz musician engages in learning and, and, and mastering 
the art of their music, their instrument, right? And perhaps that's what we need, right? Perhaps do we have to like serious business and we have to really, sometimes we got to even understand what we're asking for. Because a lot of times we're out here talking, but we truly don't appreciate breaking it down right down to the little things, exactly what the struggle is, what we're asking for, and what we need, or even what we're feeling. ATN, now yeah. you see this from a different perspective, right? Because you're, you're not a quote unquote black American, you're Trinidadian. So you come into this and you see, a, you see things that we don't see. Yeah, um, well, you know, I would, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, being a, being a foreigner in this country and having lived, you know, in the South, in the Northeast, um, in the Midwest, and on the West Coast, um, I've I, I, I've been privy to to kind of seeing how um, how the country how how the I mean one is a really big country and it's a bunch of different countries in one right like I'm from a really small place Trinidad's about the size of Delaware right um, and so but at, at the end of the day where I'm from, there's some, there's some differences. Like one, at the end of the day, we are one country and we are one people, right? We see ourselves as Trinbagonians, right? And then um, like people, people use like concepts of racial divisions and whatnot, but um, the way that like, we don't have systemic um, practices in place to keep people um in like abject poverty we don't have systemic like like there's no there's no hunt going on where i'm from and and so i mean i'm from a place where where literally people are people everybody is a person you know and and, and the last line of our national anthem is here every creed and race find an equal place and um and i, I think Believe it or not, this is a country of foreigners. The United States of America is made up of people that have come from all over the place. Um, and so it, it's, it's a concept that, I mean, I, I see the United States as a multinational country with, uh, where depending on who you are, what you've come with, you think a certain way. And I think that that's fine. But at the end of the day, if everybody understands that it's one place, it's one people and that that we have to help each other. That's the key. Like we have to help each other. We have to do something to make sure at the end of the day, 10 years down the line, five years down the line, whatever the long-term goal is, that everyone has been elevated. See what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Like that commonality. But that's the interesting thing is what is the commonality? Because we are from so many different places. We the commonality in many other places is the culture and many of those places in Asia and Europe have had cultures that have existed for thousands of years. Yeah. What is, what is American culture? What's the foundation that we are standing on? Well, the, the, the foundation of it is the implicit and explicit guarantees of the United States constitution. And whether we're talking about the constitution that was originally uh, voted on in 1787, or if we're talking about, the Constitution after the Civil War through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, 
um, those two uh, documentary uh, definitions are what we're still trying to get to today. All the guarantees that are uh, 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 in those documents is, is what everybody deep down feels they deserve. And that has not been actualized. Yeah, well, be, no, even because, in 2020. Well, because human selfishness and greed and capitalistic approaches get in the way. And some people would argue that capitalism is perhaps the opposite of morality. I'm, I'm not here to debate that. I, some people say that. Uh, but my personal feeling is if you're not fighting for someone other than yourself who doesn't look like you to be free, then you ain't interested in everybody being free. The Jay Master, I think that you hit on it earlier when you talked about tribalism, right? That when right. people are, see themselves in a struggle, see themselves suffering pain, whatever they're going through, what happens is everybody goes into their tribe for protection. That yep. type and so um, just like Brother Charles was saying early on, which is I never really thought of it, thought of, of course, this is obvious, that America is a, a multinational country, right? Basically, it's a country of foreigners. And, and to a, what's a remarkable about that is people been here for a long, long time, but we still have these tribes. Well, well that's what makes the country great and that's what makes it uh, a great potential place for racism and sexism and all of that, see? It's like it's got the greatest promise, but it also has the greatest danger because of its diversity and because of the many tribes that are trying to coexist uh, in the society. But we're finally at a point where we seem to be ready to at least have a, an honest discussion about it. <laughs> and we may not solve it right away, but you can't solve anything if you're not willing to have an honest discussion and hear the varying points of view on it. And which means that Black people should not assume that just because somebody's white, they don't have any problems, or that they also might not be being persecuted against, or that they might not also be suffering and going through a lot of very uh, repressive uh, uh, regime treatment as well. So you've got to see the other guys struggle if you really are, are interested in them seeing yours, because it's, it's, it's not that they're specifically responsible for it. It's just the collective group of people uh, that act in a in a uh, in a way that is not consistent with our principles that causes a lot of the problems. You know, Jay, you talked about the promises in the Constitution and the document. That's the thing that we can all sort of coalesce around and look that those are the guarantees. That those are the things that we are guaranteed as citizens of this country, and we're asking the country to live up to it. And that's a commonality. There's a there's an interesting common concept that is shared throughout the world for jazz musicians, and I want the jazz musicians on, on the show here to talk about it, and that is the jam session. You can go somewhere in some remote place in Norway or something and play with musicians you've yeah. never met before, and you all can get to a thing. Huh. How is that possible? What are the common core things that you all are dealing with that allows you to, to play on the bandstand with somebody that doesn't even speak the same language as you? Chris, that's because it's it's basically a language itself. It's like you take everybody around the world, and and you feed them the same books and the same words, just like you do language, and you and you meet anywhere on the world, 
and you have the same commonalities because you've all listened to the same things. You've all studied the same things for the most part. <laughs> and, you've, and you also have a framework, like there's an infrastructure to jazz, especially in terms of a jazz, jam session where we all, we can all name probably a hundred tunes off the top of our heads that we would expect each of us to know, you know? And until you can do that, you probably shouldn't walk on a bandstand, a jam session bandstand. And mm -hmm. I mean, back to the whole society metaphor, it's kind of like, yeah, we need to get to that too in this country. Like everybody should know a certain amount of things before they start discussing other things. Like it's, we're having discussions now about the police and politics and people don't even understand the executive branch, the legislative branch. People don't understand police jurisdictions, but we're here trying to solve these problems. It's like getting on a jam session stage for jazz musicians and not knowing any tunes. It's the same thing. But the reason we can all talk about it is because we've spent years studying the same language, quote unquote language, and songs. We have that, we have that to, to that commonality. So, so that's basically how that happened. So, so people don't walk up on the bandstand and start handing out charts of originals, right? Tell me, I want y'all to do that. <laughs> I mean, they do, but still, you know, you still like, you still gotta improvise and we still use the same language to get through, you know. Go ahead, ATM. Um, I was gonna chime in on that, that the, like the culture of a jam session, right? Is a great blueprint or template for how people should interact. Like if you know about something, <laughs> you should talk about it. If you don't know, get off the stage <laughs> don't like this is why I, I stay off of Facebook because one week everybody's a, a epidemiologist <laughs> the next week everybody's a political analyst the next week everybody's a sports analyst whether it's basketball or football and I, I'm just like uh, why and, and they will spend time actually denouncing what experts are saying because of something they read on Facebook or something they read on, what's up? We would never do that in a jam session. Like I don't play basketball. I grew up playing football or soccer, right? So like when, when we on the road and the fellas go and they find a basketball court, I keep my tail in the room because I don't know how to play. I will watch, but I'm not, so I, I stay out of what I don't know, but I admire and respect the fact that they have taken the time to know what they know about it. And from that, it, it means that once, you, once you've taken the time to dig into something, you have a certain amount of love and respect and admiration for it. And there's naturally a camaraderie with the other people that you're around who've done this. That's why jazz is such a magical thing. Like, like if you go to Detroit Jazz Festival in the hotel lobby or wherever, like I was in Savannah and Chris was playing with Sean's group. And it's just a natural, there's a natural mutual respect that happens when you can tell that everybody's on a certain level of knowledge and appreciation and respect is those three things. And, and part of it comes from education, you know, cause where I'm from, simply knowledge, appreciation and respect. I grew up in a place where Hindu holidays are national holidays, Muslim holidays are national holidays, Muslim feasts 
are national holidays and Christian feasts are national holidays. Also, the date of emancipation from, from enslavement is a national holiday and the date that the, the, the East Indian laborers came is a national holiday. That means right away there's mutual respect from the government level and there's mutual respect that we all commemorate everybody's days. That doesn't happen in the United States of America. Okay, only major Christian holidays are seen as national holidays. So right there, it creates a hierarchy. It creates, and for some, it, feels, it creates an idea of superiority. And for some, it creates an idea of inferiority, you know? Um, so, but that's the thing about knowledge, because immediately I had to start learning about Hindu practices. So for Diwali or for Pagwa, I know what happens. I know what those feasts are about. Same thing with Jose, same thing with Eid al-Fitr because of my neighborhood having Muslims, having Hindus, etc. And so the same way they know, the same way they call me and wish me Merry Christmas or Happy Easter. And it, it immediately creates a community the same way because we've all taken the time to know about what each other's about. And that's something that you don't really see as much as you should here in this country. And so that's why I say like the jam session or basketball court, knowing when something's a travel, knowing when something, you know, when, you know, all those rules that we, we operate in when we're doing our crafts, we should create like, you know, a, a something like that for, for national being in a sense that are not tied to, you know, colonial laws that are targeted at certain people. You know, what's crazy. Free for all. You know, what's crazy. <laughs> You know what's crazy to hear that about about that because I always say like one of the, I've been around the world a couple of times but one of the places where I felt the least like like I mean you know as a black man traveling you can feel your skin in some places yeah, yeah, yeah. but one of the places I've never I've felt that the least and it's crazy is Singapore and they have the same kind of thing like they even take their the places where they have housing and if like if an Indian person moves out an Indian person needs to move in. Like they keep mm -hmm. the cultures mixed on purpose and they celebrate everybody's holiday. And I was there maybe for a week and no, I didn't see any black people really. <laughs> like it wasn't like I saw the black people. So I felt comfortable. I just didn't feel, you know, I did that. I didn't feel that thing. I feel everywhere else. And I'm, I mean, I felt, I feel that thing in Africa. I didn't feel it yep. there and it really freaks you out. But it's like what you say, it's about if, if you're constantly learning about other people, all that other stuff is just, it just falls. All that fear that's based on myth is just non-existent. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's a great, great way to put it. That's, yeah, Singapore is interesting, man. That place is, is something else. Man. Yeah, I'm just saying. It's got some <laughs> other stuff going on, too. But I'm just saying, in terms of feeling that, I just didn't, I, it was amazing to me that I didn't feel it. And it wasn't because it was so many Black people there. That's what really yeah. my eyes. Let, let me ask you this, right? Besides the education, right, part of jazz, in society, you guys on the bandstand, you have a code of conduct, right? Like there's a civil code, right? In in government, and when you talk about government, they call that the social contract. That we people live in a society, and generally speaking, people should be polite to each other. If you're walking down the street, you shouldn't. Somebody random person shouldn't just come up out of the blue and for no good reason cuss you out or mistreat you and this that another. There's like there is sort of a social con contract that we're going to look out after each other and that type of thing. And and so I imagine that on the bandstand, that when everybody's doing their thing, because you're not just playing the written music, everybody gets to do solos and all of those type of things. So you have sort of like a 
code of conduct, how that happens, that no, no one person dominates or take over and that type of thing, right? And so that's one of the things that that's probably different than what is in America because a lot of people just violating the social contract that we have to be civil toward each other. It's true. Well said. And, and depending on who you are, there are no consequences. Hmm. You know, yeah. but in, 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 on the bandstand, there are consequences. <laughs> Unless you're the leader. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me stop. <laughs> well, you know, the whole multi uh, cultural appreciation thing is interesting. Um, uh, my wife Cheryl is writing a piece for her blog about the multicultural multicultural aspect of our children growing up when we moved to the New York area, when we, when we lived in Jersey City. When we lived in Jersey City, their, uh, their elementary school had, you know, something like 31 or 32 different nationalities in the school. And so our kids at a very young age got to know all of the different aspects of all of these different cultures and religions or whatever. And it's, it's amazing, man. It's like they come from Louisville, Kentucky, and they're really little, and we put them in the school and they become experts in the difference between Indian and Pakistani and, you know, different aspects of, 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 of Islam, right? Like immediately, it's like, how, you, how do you know all this, right? And how do you get this? Because they're around other kids and, and they're sharing, right? There's, there's no judgment there. They're sharing, they're getting to know each other. Um, and I think that's one of the things that happens, you know, when you have a universality of putting people together in a way where there can be that level of appreciation. And that's what happens with the music. That's what happens with our, with our music, jazz music, when you take it all around the world. Uh, so, Jay, what are some of the lessons that, that the music has, what are some of the other lessons that being a jazz musician that is inside of our music that we can use to help get us out of the situation we find ourselves in? Well, one thing is in jazz music, when we play together, we should not assume that we know what should happen next or what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. Because, because um, if we do either of those things, we're trying to control the environment instead of reacting instinctively in the actual environment that actually exists for us and for the people that we're interacting with. So I think that's one real important thing. A lot of times when you have different tribal groups with different considerations and concerns and fears and objectives, when they're communicating, there's a tendency to just feel like, well, here's what the other side should do. And here's what we expect them to do. And so that just keeps a stereotypical dialogue going on without it ever changing. Yeah. Um, what else? Is there anything else? Well, the good thing is when people listen, that's the most important trait of being a musician of any genre of music, is that you got to listen to what other people are playing. So I would argue that in society, our biggest problem is we all like to talk, but we don't really want to listen to each other. So I would say if you really listen to what somebody else is saying, the way you respond to it will be different from if you're trying to talk over them. Wow. So in playing music, especially jazz music, most of the time people are not really listening, they're playing. <laughs> so 
uh, they're not really listening. Or thinking when about jazz what played at like. the, <laughs> Well, yeah, but I'm just saying, when you hear jazz music being played at the highest level, that's because people are listening. And they're trying to create something that's better as a result of what they're hearing than necessarily because of what they are individually playing. You see what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it's almost like the power of the sum of the parts. Right. Um, you see what I'm saying? Like, in other words, I don't have to feel that I have to solve everything that's wrong. See, if I focus on what I'm doing and I fix that, that may be enough. And if somebody else is doing the same thing, you see what I mean? So it becomes more of a percentage thing. So all the people working together equals 100%. Right. Instead of one person thinking they got to be 100%. Does that make sense? Right. Um, I always no, talk sure about it does. in terms of working concentrically, right? I mean, you got to fix what's going on with you first. If there's an issue with, if, if you see the country a certain way in terms of things not being the way that you think they should be, you got to fix what you have control over. And the thing that you right. have the most control over is yourself. You can't go, you know, when you're on an airplane, at least when people were flying, they would always tell you, if you had a small child with you, what do they tell you? Put your mask on first. You can't right. help your child if you're dead, right? So yeah, take care yeah, of yourself so that you can be in a position to help somebody else. Uh, and too often, I think, and I'm guilty of this myself a lot, is we're always pointing the finger at what's going on and what somebody else's problem is and what it is that they need to do to change in order to make the world better, as opposed to looking at what it is that you should be doing yourself to make the world better, and then working concentrically out from there. So it's you, your spouse, or your, your mate, your children, you know, your family, and then going out, outward from there. You know, Andre, um, we got into a little of this um, when we was talking about all the different players out there, right? Like for instance, and, and really listening and understanding what the J Master was saying, really, because when you listen, you're not just listening to say, I heard what you're saying, you're listening to understand what a person is saying, right? And That's when right. we're talking about that some, some people are out there in the street troublemakers, foolings, they, uh, they take into the street just to ride, just to cause trouble, just to loot and all this type of thing. And I said, wait one minute, right? That may very well be the case, but that may be a, an expression of anger on their part, right? In other words, it may not be what just the media is saying, that these people are just out there to take advantage of the situation. You, you're talking about a group, a lot of times a group of black men who've been denied their full expression of their manhood and masculinity. Now, some people, black men in, in America, coming into an environment where you're denied the full expression of your manhood, some people take the right, righteous route and in and, and the moral route to regain, to reestablish their manhood. And other people, they may go, they may go in the opposite direction. But a lot of times, thuggery is an act of masculinity from a lot of black men's perspective. And so when something like this happens, the, 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 the way that they know to understand what they feel that they bring into the table is that we're gonna burn the city down. We know that every black person is not willing to put their life on the line. Every black person is not willing to cause trouble. 
Now this is, in most situations, this is counterproductive. This is terrible. This is an awful situation. But, at, but before we really criticize, we have to really understand what is happening with the person. Why are they doing what they're doing? Not what we just think or we assume, right? And when we can understand each other from all aspects, then we got a greater chance of coming together and really solving our problems. Chris? Well, think of the, think of the state of desperation a person would have to be in to literally jump through a broken window to steal a phone. Think, think of where, where you would really have to be to decide this is the only chance I'm gonna ever get to do this. And I'm willing to jump through shattered glass to grab a TV. So that indicates that there's a lot more going on with that person than meets the eye. Because most people who have a bunch of that stuff, they don't really feel the need to do that, do they? So again, it's, it's a question of, uh, of digging maybe a little deeper so we can get past the soundbite-driven, image-driven, put everybody who has a lot of money in position on a pedestal-driven society, which I've always argued is a mistake. Don't be putting people on a pedestal. Admire what they do, admire what they know, but that does not mean that they shouldn't necessarily be put on a pedestal above somebody else who doesn't have that. You know, that's happening a lot, right? I mean, because a person is, I don't know, a multimillionaire or billionaire, that somehow they know more about the problem than everybody else. Just because a person is a famous celebrity or artist or, or a, a athlete, that somehow they got greater insight and understanding than anybody else out there. Just imagine that you got some celebrity coming out and you got a heart condition and they're coming in there lecturing you hardcore on exactly what you need to do to solve your medical problems, right? You know what I'm saying? Beating you down and the world is giving them all kinds of respect. You said, doggone right. You should follow, you know, what Jay-Z has to say about this, this particular heart condition that you have or this some other medical problem. That would be considered nonsense. But you will have somebody like JC, Jay-Z, or you know, or some basketball player, whatever, jumping up, and everybody they part the seas. All of a sudden, it's like somebody hitting the lottery for a hundred million dollars. And the next thing you know, they lecturing family, friends, and loved ones about how to be responsible and invest in your money when they were known to be broke 24-7. They were known to mismanage money. Now, all of a sudden, they're expert. This is the kind of nonsense that we got going on in the world. So I agree with you, Jay Master, right, that we should respect people but we sh for what they do, but we shouldn't put them on a pedestal. We shouldn't assume that they know everything or they know better than anybody else. So when you, when you talk about putting people on the pedestal, that reminds me of the notion of leadership, right? And Jay, I want to talk to you a little bit about this and have Chris and ATN chime in. When we look, there seems to be a lack of leadership uh, on the political stage for where we find ourselves as Black folks sort of moving forward in agenda on the political stage and in the social stage. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, a lot of people agree that they don't want to have a figurehead of a leader like a Malcolm X or a Martin Luther King. 
because it is, it's, it's a sort of amorphous thing that can go wherever it needs to go and it doesn't need to check into some centralized place. And there's a place for that. And it has been, it has been very effective in that regard. But Jay, you know, you, you're at the age where you played with a lot of the seminal figures and have been mentored or have been on the bandstand with a lot of the, the seminal figures in our, in our music. And that I call it the circle remains unbroken. And now you're seen by a lot like ATN, you've mentored him and, and brought him into a certain understanding of music. Where do you see the leadership that you have and then the responsibility that you have? And do you see that there's, is there a disconnect now? Do we see people your age not taking on the mantle of, of leadership to do what it is that you're doing at Florida State for people like ATN? And I want to ask Chris and ATN, what do they see in terms of, of leadership that they see with with people who are a little older than them and giving them the leadership that they need in order to move forward as uh, and, and get an understanding of this music that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Right. I, um, I believe in something that August Wilson told me years ago, which was it takes two generations to raise the next generation. And the reason for that is that each generation has a different set of solutions for the same set of problems. And so that allows the next generation to take what they can from each one. The generation closest to them, they're typically in competition with, but also in need of. The generation above that, they tend not to be as threatened because they don't really see themselves as being particularly associated with that generation, but they'll still take the information. So if you think of your grandfather versus your father, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. But you need both generations, and I think that's where we're falling short. Nobody's looking back far enough to get different views of the same information. And uh, according to Wilson, he said when you break that, um, if you break that, meaning that you miss out on those two generations doing it, it takes a couple of decades to rebuild it. Wow. Chris, where do you see that in terms of leadership and music, in terms of you being mentored? Are there leaders who are a generation above you that uh, were either seminal figures or mentored by the seminal figures in the, in the music? Yes. <laughs> um. The great thing about jazz is you you almost can't become a proficient jazz musician without even experiencing that. I mean, I can't, I mean, I don't know these two gentlemen's lives, but I feel like everybody's story is the same. Someone above them from another generation probably introduced the music to them, you know? And in music, it's almost like a duty. You got to pay that back, you know? Like, I wouldn't be playing music without my dad and all the musicians. He took me around. And I have to display that same gesture to anyone below me. But in terms of like now outside of music, I don't know. I'm starting to think like you start looking around at other people and other struggles of other people. Like who are their leaders? Like who is who are Asian Americans leaders? Who who you know? And I'm starting to think like you know. Is that a, a requirement right now to have some seminal figure, you know, to push 
for some sort of change when we can all kind of do that now ourselves? Well, well, you could argue, right? Well, you had X and King, the two big leaders we sort of think of mythologically speaking, but there was an entire infrastructure underneath King, SNCC, right. you know, right. NAACP, you had Thurgood Marshall, you had John Lewis, you had, you know what I'm saying? There was, a, there was a whole lot of thing. Rosa Parks didn't happen by accident, right? It was a whole game plan that people behind the closed doors figured out well in advance to get her into a situation. And I don't know if we have that kind of a game plan now uh, in place to be able to come to the table up to get to a specific solution as it relates to something like police brutality, for instance. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I'm not here to say that, that I have the answer or that I know that there is not people doing that. It just doesn't seem like it is the way that it was. And maybe that's okay. I'm just here to ask the question. Now, some well, people- I would- I would, I would say quickly, though, that some of it is these are uncomfortable issues. Like, a lot of stuff is simple. It's like, it's simple to know that you can't run out of your house without no clothes on. Like, nobody's going to really argue with you about that. But when you get into racism, sexism, the American Disabilities Act, and, and all these things, these are, these are not simple things. And their legitimate points of view from all angles. And the bottom line is, at some point, there's got to be some sense that we're really going to attack them from an informed perspective from all sides if we're really going to head in the direction of solving it. I do think leadership is necessary, but the same argument could be made that, yeah, maybe. Maybe now it's an, it's an individual thing of, like John Lewis said, if there's something you see that's not right, is there something you can do, do it. Because um, usually the leadership comes from that. Like whoever the great, I don't know that Dr. King had a particular plan that he was going to become the leader of the civil rights movement. I think it, it was a confluence of variables that eventually led him there. Uh, but I just think if everybody starts doing what they can do, the leadership that's required will flow from that. You know, um, Jay Master, I think you make an important point when you say that some of the issues are simple and some of them are very complicated. And so if we use the jazz analogy, for instance, a jazz musician may know the music inside and out, but they may not necessarily know the business. Say if they go on to sign their contract, and we know musicians have run into big issues historically in dealing with unfair contracts. So it behooves that musician to have one of the best contract lawyers at their side to make sure that everything is on the up and up. And people are saying right now, like they're saying a lot of the white power structures say, okay, we, we hear you, we want to solve this problem. What do you want? Right? And mm -hmm a lot of black folks don't have an answer. So we need a certain amount of expertise. We need some people who know exactly what they're doing, how government works, how police departments work, how does funding works, what's the best practices, what kind of, when you say you want to divert money from the police department into programs, what's the best programs to put them in? You know, the everyday person out there protesting in the street, the everyday member of Black Lives Matter may not have the expertise. 
So at some point, we would want to have some expertise. We would want to have some leadership to know how to negotiate all of these type of things. Because it's like you say, Brother Marcus, is um, some of these issues are complicated. And we're going to, at some point, we're going to need some expertise. Yeah. So, yeah, we're coming towards the end here. We've had a, a really good run of discussion here. We appreciate the fact that Marcus could join us and give us some of his nuggets of wisdom. I just want to, uh, before I give everybody sort of a last chance to chime in here, I just encourage everybody to go on educated-guesses.com and check out the piece that I wrote called Finding Solution in Today's Chaotic World Using the Wisdom of the J-Master. And I'll just wrap up by saying there's three, uh, three things that I point out in the piece that I got from the story that Jay told us earlier is that one, you take responsibility, personal responsibility for the problems of the group. Two, don't play the blame game. And three, lead proactively and others will follow. And Marcus, I really appreciate you and everything that you've meant to me personally and professionally and the insights that you've given me because I think about that regularly. I think about that story you told me all the time and I try to take it those three things that I just said that I wrote in that piece and apply them to my life every day. So I appreciate you, brother. I love you more than words can say, man. You, you wanted the true soldiers out here trying to make a difference in the world, not only in who you are personally, but in the music that you're putting out there, which has touched so many people. Well, thank you uh, very much, Andre. I appreciate you and everyone else being here. And certainly with you writing that piece that you wrote, the beautiful thing about it the good thing about it is that it does bring jazz music front and center and it helps to prove the point that art doesn't exist in a vacuum. Its legitimacy fundamentally lies in the influence that it can have to solve current problems that normal people have. And that's the one thing anyone who listens to this, I want them to gain from this conversation. We don't have the solutions, but we're looking for them and we're pushing for them. And jazz music might help you to feel good enough, to feel strong enough to continue to fight these issues that all of us have, be us black, white, red, yellow. We all have issues that we would like someone to understand and to empathize with. So I think it's great that you put that out there, Andre. It's much appreciated. Thank you, brother. Uh, anything from you guys before we get out of here? Yeah, I'm, I might just chime in on on the Jay um, simply because you know his teachings are legendary and 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 you know they talk about two generations, um, but within those two generations, it's multiple angles of mentorship that happen. It's kind of like a tree, right? So, you know, Marcus had great mentors like Ellis, Marsalis, and, and, um, and he was one of my mentors. Um, but the, the thing about mentorship in this music is I think every generation, it, it, it broadened its, its perspective. And the cool mm -hmm. thing about the day master is that the perspective that he brought to my table um, just by watching him operate and watching how he 
he not just how he played or how he ran his brand and how how he really was curating his contribution to the canon of this music right um but also he told me something that was so important that it by it, it it allowed me to bypass everything many problems that many jazz musicians face in the current climate and that they've been facing since the 1920s when black jazz musicians started getting recorded and he told me straight make sure you own your music and ralph mcdonald told me the same thing he said make sure you own your music and it could have been from years of problems with record deals and um i think um us going forward as 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 mentors and leaders you know um and i think that that's one way that we can help to decolonize this music because if you look throughout the history of this music as even though the majority of pioneers innovators and creators in this music are of african descent um the majorities of the majority of people who own the music are not of african descent and that speaks a lot to why musicians end up forced to do tours that don't pay well musicians end up being forced to take record deals that don't pay well in the long run just because they need cash because it creates this colonized perspective and just by him saying those three words to me own your music he decolonized my whole way of doing business from the get go which i'm crucially grateful for because it's allowed me um a lot of liberties and a lot of privileges as a result that um that i'm forever indebted to him for so more than the musical gifts that he's given me and taught me all about his music I've, i mean i could play his record his music at the piano and that's why i used to teach my students now but more than that just him telling me you can do this on your own you don't need a white record label to tell you that this is good and that you should do this you don't need them to 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 really validate anything that you think you want to or have to do for your people and that's the most powerful thing about what the J master teaches is that he gives you power that's the that's that's the that's the magic of the J master and i'm grateful for it we got to get this kind of we got to get we got to get this kind of superhero uh costume man the <laughs> oh J on it <laughs> yeah we should <laughs> It's my Halloween costume. <laughs> Absolutely. And we got to get the Jericho from the 80s, Jay. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even say <laughs> 85. Huh? 85. <laughs> yeah, there, right. there are photos of that. Yo, have there, you seen those pictures, Andre? Yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, y'all need to try to hide them if, if you do find them. <laughs> All right, well. Thank everybody for, uh, for for chiming in here on Zoom and coming in and, and being a and, part of the Hank and Herb show and the podcast. Oh, well, uh, Brother Haroon's going to take us out. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's let's let's. I don't want to pile on here, right? And and Jay Master, you warned us about putting our heroes on on a pedestal, right? But I must. Say that I am. I am like so surprised, right? How much insight? Uh, forget about the music, right? not to forget about it, but how much insight that you have on what's happening politically in this struggle out here today, right? And I would like just, I mean, I mean, incredible amount of insight. 
because me, me and Dre, we talk about this 20, we've been talking about this for the last 25 years. The same, <laughs> the struggle yeah. of black folks in America, right? And I'm here to tell you that your insight is, is, is incredible on these particular issues. And I would encourage you to get invited on other platforms to, to, to tell people, to give people your perspective, because I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And, and I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. No, I, I, I will do that. I appreciate the encouragement. I will. If there's anything we can ever do to help facilitate that, we will. So, all right, there you have it. Another episode right, of the Hick and Herb Show in the can. I'd like to thank everybody who's here, Haroon Shabazz, Chris Fun, ATN Charles, and Markaniel, Marcus, the J Master Roberts. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll check you next time. Peace. The Hank and Herb Show is a podcast that is a member of the Educated Guesses family. It can be found on educated-guesses.com. It is a podcast where we explore the issues of the day that are based upon articles that are written by myself, Andre Kimo Stone Guess, Haroon Shabazz, and Chris Fun. All of our articles can be found on educated-guesses.com, but you can also find Haroon's writing at theblackscene.com. That is T-H-E-B-L-A-C-K-S-C-E-N-E dot com. And you can find Chris Fun's writing at medium.com. Thank you for tuning in and look out for the next episode of the Hank and Herb Show on Educated Guesses. The music from today's podcast is from Marcus Roberts' 1990 release, Deep in the Shed. Check it out on all the streaming services, and check out Marcus on his website, marcusroberts.com.